So Money Episode 200, Melanie Notkin. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. It is episode 200. Can you believe it? We have come so far since January 14th, 2015, 200 episodes in. And before I get to today's very special 200th guest, I just want to say thank you to all of you listeners who have stuck with the show from the very beginning and to say welcome to new listeners and also to address uh, this was interesting. Um, I want to take a little second here to talk about a recent review that I got on iTunes that was not favorable for this show. And I'm just going to give some snippets from this review. I'm not going to identify who it is. I don't really know who left the review. All of the reviews are somewhat anonymous with the nicknames. But this person wrote that they've been listening for a while, and if they could give two and a half stars instead of three they would. Seems I'm on the right track, this person says, and gives me props for taking the risk and getting good uh, content and good speakers, but um, feels that the show is unpolished, feels that the show is too informal. Also, it's upset because I raved about wanting to have 50 Cent on the show, and then he declared bankruptcy, so I look like an idiot. But of course, I wanted to have him on the show before I knew he was about to declare bankruptcy. It was interesting timing. And even still, I would love to have him on the show because I think that would be really interesting to talk to somebody who is currently going through bankruptcy. And how, how 50 Cent could you be in bankruptcy? You're, so we thought, uh, a wealthy millionaire. But anyway, person goes on to say that um, what's interesting is that I don't have a sponsor. And if the show is, quote unquote, successful, why don't I have a sponsor? Where's the show going? And so I kind of had to laugh at that because listen, the show could have a sponsor months ago. Um, I am totally funding this out of pocket. Maybe it's not so money to not have a sponsor, but I'm very protective of this show. Uh, believe me, I, I have all, I'm ready to go with a sponsor. It's just finding the right sponsor and understanding how I would even package the sponsorship into the show. I don't like disruptions. I have the fortune and the privilege of being able to produce this show out of pocket. And believe me, this podcast has, has boomeranged in other prosperous ways for me that, um, people don't see. You know, I have leveraged this podcast to do other things that have made me money. And so if I can, for as long as I can, keep the show, just me and the listener and you, without interruptions from a sponsor, I'm going to do that. And when I, and I'm not saying I'm not going to have a sponsor one day, but that is not how I measure the success of this show. Yeah, I could make a few extra thousand dollars here and there with a podcast sponsor, but I, I have other values here with, and, and purposes in doing this show. 
So just wanted to, as we are celebrating the 200th episode of the show, uh, bring to surface this uh, rather critical review and uh, offer some feedback to this concerned listener and also share with listeners where this show is headed. We are in our 200th episode. I'm looking forward to airing an entire week of Millionaires Next Door later this month in August. Later in September, we're going to be showcasing millennials who are kicking ass, who are doing awesome, great work making money, getting rid of debt, saving. If you are a millennial that fits that description, let me know. Email me. We're still looking at uh, potential profiles and subjects for that week. Farnoosh at SoMoneyPodcast.com. So lots of exciting things coming our way. We have Nate Burkus on the show later this month. He is, as you know, uh, a wildly successful designer, decorator, one of Oprah's friends and a friend uh, now to So Money. I'm looking forward to unleashing that episode. So the point is the show is growing. It's expanding. People are listening. They're tuning in. The reviews are growing. Uh, the listenership is growing. I couldn't be a happier person. So thank you for that. And let's get on with today's guest. She is Melanie Notkin, and a dear friend of mine of over seven, eight years. We talk in the show a little bit about how we met. It's an interesting story. Now, in this day and age, we hear a lot about women finding balance. And I talk about this a lot on the podcast, in my books, how to strike a balance uh, when you're working and being a parent and you're in a relationship, whether you're married or not, but you know, we have relationships in our lives to nurture. How do you do it all? You know, what is that pursuit like? How do you do this successfully, quote unquote, successfully, healthily? But what about the women who are working, who have relationships, but aren't married, who don't have children? My guest today, Melanie Notkin, is a media entrepreneur, author, marketer, keynote speaker, and lifestyle personality who founded Melanie Notkin Media back in 2007, the first and only multi-platform media company designed for the growing global demographic of childless, often single women. Savvy Auntie is the name of her popular and beloved lifestyle brand and best-selling book for cool aunts, great aunts, godmothers, and all women who love kids. The brand appeals primarily to Melanie's proprietary Pank, professional aunts, no kids, demographic of 23 million American women. And in celebration of this childful demo, Melanie established Auntie's Day in 2009. Her book, Savvy Auntie, The Ultimate Guide for Cool Aunts, Great Aunts, Godmothers, and All Women Who Love Kids is a national bestseller. And she has a new wonderful book out called Otherhood, Modern Women Finding a New Kind of Happiness. This is Melanie's reported memoir on childless, often single women who expected love, marriage, and motherhood. Now, before becoming a media entrepreneur, Melanie was an interactive and print beauty editor and interactive marketing and communications executive for global Fortune 500 companies. And in our conversation, we discuss our cultural and societal mom-opic view of the world, how stressing over money can only limit you from making money, and how growing up, she felt as though wealth was something that was someone else's, not to be something for her, not something that she could have, and how she has changed that mentality. Without further ado, here we go. Here's Melanie Notkin. Melanie Notkin, my friend, welcome to So Money. I'm so excited to have you join us on the show. How are you doing? Farnish, I'm so happy to be here. I This is going to be great. We're going to have so much fun. Do you remember how we met, Melanie? Do you remember the, the night that we met? 
<laughs> I, was it was it somebody's birthday party? It was our mutual friend Renat. Yes. Renat Brodsky's birthday. I remember my, 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 I had just started dating my boyfriend. I was there with my best friend and we had, uh, gone to this very, um, out of the way sort of dark, uh, bar. It was, I remember there was like a winding staircase. It, the ceiling was very low. We were very skeptical of this, of this place, but the, the company <laughs> was really, really interesting. Renat has some amazing friends and we, we were introduced and, I learned that at that time you had just quit your job in marketing, media, journalism, transitioning to start SavvyAnti.com. Yeah. And um, so, so great to have met you at that crossroads, right? You were just starting to build this business. And now, I guess, gosh, I don't know how many, almost eight years later, yep. uh, here you are uber successful. Savvy Andy has skyrocketed. You have written multiple books. Your latest is called Otherhood, which I, I want to dive into. Uh, but let's go back to that night, Melanie. I mean, what was your, where were you, what was in your head? What were you thinking? What had you envisioned? Did you ever think you would arrive at a place like today? First of all, you have a fantastic memory. I will give you that. I do remember meeting you at Renat's birthday party, but I do not remember winding staircases, etc. It was, um, it was kind of a dungeony place. It was weird, but I, I do remember it was dark and it was downstairs. So maybe my memory is not as bad. But what I do remember about the time eight years ago that I decided to start um, this business was how it had come to me so organically. Um, like you said, I, I was, you know, a, a marketing and communications um, executive for a global beauty company. And I'd been a, a digital marketing executive for the New York Times, Digital and American Express. Um, and I, I was at this crossroads in my life. I was in my mid to late 30s and really thinking about what to do next. Every time I went on a job interview, I'd have this agita of, okay, same, similar, better job, but are the politics going to be the same? I, I mean, all, all the, the differentials were, you know, well, here's a position that's open and, oh, my office would have a really nice view. <laughs> but I just, I couldn't see myself doing it again. It just felt like deja vu all over again, you know? And and so when I decided to start Savianti, I mean, I don't even know if it had a name when I met you that night. It might have. I, I, I realized that there were no resources for the modern aunt for women like me. Um, personally, I'd always expected to marry and have children. And here I was, like I said, in my mid to late thirties and still not married. And today still not married, no kids. And women decide not to have kids. Women are younger and not ready to have kids. And I realized there was this whole demographic of women that marketers and the media and even society was was skipping over, was neglecting. Mm -hmm. And they were neglecting themselves. They didn't really feel like they had this identity um, as, a, as an aunt. And, and by the way, an aunt is a is a much larger concept than just, you know, a sibling. You're an aunt to a sibling's child, but you're you can be an ABC, an aunt by choice to your friends, children. My 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 benchmark for it, you know, to identify as an aunt, if you've ever paid uh, full retail at, at Baby Gap, you're an aunt. 
Because you know as a mom, <laughs> everything goes on sale. Right. right. But with an aunt, we're like, oh my God, that's so cute. I'm going to buy it. And and that's exactly the consumer that I that I thought was um, being missed out on um, from a marketing perspective. And frankly, from a consumer perspective, nobody was talking to me. I didn't know what my nieces and nephew wanted um, for their birthday, for the holidays, et cetera. And um, while I felt quite savvy in my career and while I didn't have a boyfriend or husband, I, I did feel good about when I was dating and I had lots of friends. But when it came to the most important people in my life, my nephew and nieces, um, I was really um, not so savvy and not to say it wasn't maternal, but in terms of what they're into, not so savvy. So that's probably where I was when I met you was developing the solution to this, which became Savvy Auntie, this multi-platform media company for women, primarily for aunts who don't have kids. And I, I called that demographic the Pank Professional mm-hmm. Aunt no kids, and um, and later uh, released a study with Weber Shanwick and KRC Research in 2002 called The Power of the Pank, and we know that there are 23 million American women age 18 plus who um, don't have children of their own, um, but do have at least one child in their life um, with whom they are besotted. Um, and so that's, that's where I was. It was really a pinnacle point, not only in my career, but, but in my life, Farnoosh. You have so brilliantly pegged this market and also very savvy as far as uh, you know, great getting the, uh, all, the, all the branding around that. You own it. You own the space. And you, in the, initially, you, know, you really brought the, the identity of this person to the marketplace. Who is she? What does she want? What, what are her needs? What are her pain points? What is she struggling with? Now, uh, I see that you've also taken a, a deeper dive into the into the psychographic uh, and the emotional elements that um, are kind of the undercurrent of this of this female and motherhood is this memoir of yours where uh, it's less about the consumer aspect of being a pank but also but now really uh, the journey of a woman who is searching still for love would still love to have children of her own one day how it came to be for you that you are now uh, a member of this demographic, what the struggles that you're going through. Tell us a little about Otherhood. I understand that this book, some people loved it. Others felt that it was a little sad. And what did you hope this book would at the very minimum do for, for readers? Um, thanks for asking. Um, well, first to, to comment on the last statement. Um, you know, it's interesting. The majority of comments that come um directly to me and um, on Amazon and other reviews um, actually find it quite reaffirming that they're not alone. The book is actually pretty hilarious, so I don't know why people think it's sad. I think those are the people who actually didn't read it (laughs) and um, felt like I was going to somehow bring them down into this black hole of aloneness where really it, it what it does for women is make them feel like they're part of this really cool tribe of women who um, won't settle for a lesser love and the and the, the trials and tribulations of of dating as a woman in her um, you know mid 30s mid 40s and up and um, it came about because I when I released my first book, Savvy Auntie, The Ultimate Guide for Cool Aunts, Great Aunts, Godmothers, and All Women Who Love Kids. Um, In 2011, um, I became a contributor to the Huffington Post. And it was, I think, maybe my third post there, um, where I I really took a a different uh, 
approach. I had been talking about aunthood, and I think I wrote one it was around Mother's Day, another one really about aunthood, et cetera. And um, I was thinking, I don't know who reads this. I, you know, I'm just going to say something. And that something was the truth about childless women. And um, the what happened was the, the piece went viral. It ended up on CNN. And I, I mean, I went on CNN. I was on Good Day New York here in, in New York, which is a pretty big, um, as you know, pretty big um, show here in the morning and um, and was written, it was written up, et cetera. And it, it was essentially how most women are not choosing to remain single and childless or one or the other. And there is this um, almost chic um, trend of being child free. And while I completely champion um, anybody's choice, certainly the choice to not have children if one doesn't want children. Much of that, by the way, is, is a little, there are lots of shades of gray in there. Sometimes it's one partner who doesn't want children and the other who does, um, one who isn't sure and then um, decides because the other partner isn't sure, probably doesn't want that they don't have, etc. Sometimes they, they were born that way. They never wanted to have children. But the majority of adults, both men and women, and Gallup actually did a poll on this um, in 1993 and then again in 2013, um, the majority of men and women through age 40 want or expect to have children. And so, um, but because it doesn't seem feminist, although I'll, I'll tell you why I do believe believe it's quite feminist, although it doesn't seem feminist to, to, because it's not a proactive choice to wait for love. Um, this, this demographic of women who um, are in their 30s and 40s and at that borderline of whether or not they'll be able to have biological um, children are, are dealing with um, the grief of what I call circumstantial infertility. And yes, that's the sad chapter in the book, but very vulnerable and very honest and true as it is part memoir of, of the pain and grief, the, um, the disenfranchised grief, meaning it's the kind of grief that people don't recognize because um, when one, a woman is single, her childlessness is her fault. Well, because you're too picky. Oh, just go on Match.com. Get one of those Tinder apps going. Come on. Give a guy a chance. It's your fault. You're too married to your career. You're a career woman as opposed to what? Homeless? Um, so, so there was this um, idea that women who um, are single and childless um, chose that way um, and probably chose that way out of naivete, if not because she absolutely doesn't want a partner and or doesn't want children. And the truth about childless women focused on the majority of us who want love before children and want child with that love. And yes, it's true that some women do um, at the end of their fertility or as their fertility is waning, do decide to have a child on their own. Um, not all women are able to do that or want to do that. Frankly, they want to have a child with the man or woman, man that they love. And so the and it was crazy to me that the piece got so much attention in that, how is this not something that's out there? In any case, I kept writing about this topic um, more and more, um, discussing some of the issues I, I pointed out in this, in this first one. And that is what landed me the book deal with otherhood. Um, and there are more stories there. There are more stories on having imposed women and, um, 
and yes, it's a deeper, more emotional, um, psychographic dive into this um, demographic. But I would hardly say it's sad. In fact, um, women who don't settle for a lesser love, women who um, know that they're not waiting to be chosen, but choose. And, and that's the feminist point of it, right? It's, it's that we, we didn't have to leave college and get married because we couldn't earn a living, right? Now mm -hmm. our generation can. And so we choose to wait for the right relationships. And, and while we are hedging our bets, um, and sadly for some of us, including myself, who always wanted children, um, and I'm 46 now, we're unable to um, to to find that the, the, the rainbow at the end. But yet, um, I while I will say that my life is not what I expected, Farnoosh, it is without question truly beyond my expectations in many ways. This book has taken on a life of its own. And when I saw you a couple of weeks ago, you shared with me how it has brought you to new opportunities. This market is not shrinking, obviously, with so many um, more women, uh, like you say, not settling for less. And so what's next? I'd love for you to share a little bit about how this book and just being an author can, as a lot of my listeners are interested in writing, how a book, and particularly your book, this latest book, uh, has led to other opportunities. How have you leveraged it? Um, thank you for asking. And um, yes, it has led to tremendous opportunities. The book had been optioned for television. Um, and I'm not quite sure if that's um, now going to be the direction. Um, there may be some other directions for it on screen, which are very exciting. And uh, it's led me to doing much more um, speaking. So I'm a, I'm a speaker on this topic. In fact, I'm keynoting the, the first Not Mom conference in, in October in, in Cleveland. And um, it's led to um, more uh, another look at the demographic, the, the full non-mom demographic, whether like myself, it's by circumstance or biology or by choice, um, because whether or not one is an aunt, often enough, um, a lot of marketing and, and media messaging is for the mom. And we're, we've become a very mom-opic um, society where even though there are fewer women actually having children today, um, most women, by the way, do eventually have children. It's still between 80 and 85 percent of American women who have children. Um, but we're having them later, if at all. And so there is this longer period of time where women are, um, and if we take the commerce out of it, where women are kind of ignored by media, um, where the most of the women we see on television are moms. Even on, I used to joke that on Parenthood, um, all the, except for one, all of the women on their playing mothers, parents, we're, we're actually not parents in real life. <laughs> and, you know, mm -hmm. it's a big irony is that some of the most successful women in America are not parents and not always by choice. Again, it's not like a feminist, like, I'm not going to have children because I'm going to focus on my career. There are a lot of women like yourself mm -hmm. who are fantastic moms and, and fantastic um, in their careers. And so um, there's been, like I said, this mom-opic view, this myopic view of all women as moms. And so um, I've really focused um, on finding ways to help media better understand um, this demographic because we are um, tens of millions of women. And these we are women who are more likely to have a college education 
college education. We are we have a how generally a, a higher household income, um, often enough because we're single and therefore the only income in the household. Um, we're very charitable. Uh, we're nesters. We are a whole bunch of things that. Um, and yet in the media, if you take a look at shows, they're now um, off the air, but like um, Up All Night with Christina Applegate and Maya Rudolph. Maya Rudolph played a, a talk show host who was about 40 in her early 40s. And, and even though she had accomplished tremendous success in her career, when she was given the baby to hold, it was like she'd never held a baby in her life. Mm-hmm. Like only somebody who gives birth or adopts a child could have any clues what it's right. like to hold a baby. You know, it's it's like dads complain that they look like morons in the media. Well, aunts are were always, you know, the, the on the Michael J. Fox show, his sister was the aunt and her, you know, she always had cleavage and she was always man chasing and didn't know anything about kids. It was always fumbling. And I'm trying to reestablish who this woman is in in media and people say like how can we change the 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 attitude toward um this woman again among the most um successful uh women in america and the way to do it is to be honest so when someone says yeah i know you don't have kids but you know you've been really focused on your career um the answer is well of course i've been focused on my career but i've also been focused on love Nobody proposed to me and I said, no, 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 honey, I've got a meeting to attend. I can't, I can't worry about the proposal. <laughs> um, we can, we're pretty good multitaskers. So it's, it's the media and frankly, marketers are, are, um, communicate the, the echo of society. They echo back the conversations. They don't really create many new conversations. And so it's up to the women of the otherhood, um, women in their thirties and forties and fifties who expected a different life to, to, to be honest about, about what they're dealing with. Well, Melanie, would you agree? I mean, our, our country is very conservative. We're very, uh, religious. We live in New York, so we don't experience the heaviness that is this country's, you know, focus on conservatism and and even Christianity. And when you look at, I remember Fox News actually when I think there was the statistic about fewer women having children. They actually had a morning segment about how this relate equated necessarily to the fact that women were being selfish. Because they right. weren't starting families, they weren't having kids, and so there is pressure in some ways to maintain this uh, this this archetype of what it means to be a, a a real woman, a praised woman, a giving woman, a generous woman. She has kids. She sacrifices her career to help her family, and I think that there there might be that uh, that headwind, so to speak, to to to, to fight through. No question. But, you know, what's always left out of this um, conversation are the men. (laughs) Um, Most of the women I know wanted kids, who wanted to get married, wanted to get engaged. It's always him who doesn't want it. Um, Men are actually more reluctant today to get married, which is ironic, of course, because women are actually earning half the income in the household often enough, right? So Mm -hmm. we're earning more than him, as you know, because you wrote about this. So um, it's kind of ironic. It's not like he has to worry about also... um, being the breadwinner for the wife as well um, in this generation. And so, um, but fewer men want to get married. And and part of the reason why they don't want to get married is because they don't want to have kids. They don't want the responsibility. It's not women. You know, they're, they're, even this U.S. Census had this crazy misnomer of a headline in 2012, the delayer boom. College-educated women are delaying childbirth. Hmm. I, what, what do you mean we're... De- 
Wait, where are the men in this picture? Right. <laughs> right. We, we don't say that exactly. Men have been getting college degrees for centuries. They have never been pinned to this to this uh, this set quote unquote setback. And it's like this, you know, we, we have this collective idea to put up our diplomas on, on the wall and say, okay, you know, let's forget childbirth. No, it, it's because it's, it's, frankly, it's much harder to get married because the guys don't want to get married. And we want, and, and frankly, college educated women um, actually want to be in a um, relationship, the CD says, uh, CDC says, um, before having children. And so whether, well, they will acquiesce to living with the guy, you know, or a serious relationship because he doesn't really see the point in marriage, blah, blah, blah. Um, she really wants to have a child with, with the man or woman um, whom she loves. So um, but the problem with this is that it, it puts all the blame on her mm-hmm. and says, you know, you're the selfish one. You're you're not, or whatever word that they're using, you're delaying, your, your career is too important. And hello, um, it's guys are often enough part of the equation. Well, thank you so much for doing the important work that you're doing. I'm so glad that it's gotten so much traction and it, the, so much attention. Congratulations on Otherhood. Let's, let's transition now to learn more a little bit about Melanie Notkin and why she's so money. <laughs> I mean, Melanie, if, if you had a financial philosophy, if you had to distill it to a sentence or two, what, what is it? Um, the more you worry about money, the less productive you are in making it. Um, so sometimes we can get um, caught up in the stress, of financial stress, and, and that's obviously relative. I mean, look, there's, it's very stressful if you can't pay the rent and you can't buy food, and especially if you have kids and other people you're taking care of. I mean, there's, there's no question there's a, a, a benchmark of, of what stress can be. But um, when we have this um, measure of what we believe our financial success is or comfort level should be or is, um, and for, you know, a, a, somebody who's making 50 grand, maybe it's making 250 grand, somebody making 250 grand, it's half a million, half a million, it's 3 million, etc. Um, it's all relative. But the more you 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 all say even waste time, um, or I waste time because I'm I'm it was actually a friend of mine who told me this as I was um, concerned about you know needing the 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 X amount of dollars to to invest in X, you know X project etc. And he said you know the more you worry about money, the less time you're spending making money. And every time I worry about money, I think. The exact same thing. I shut down that thought and keep going. Mm-hmm. And when 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 would you say is one example of when you were worried about money? Mm. Um, <laughs> um, I don't know that I've ever been worried about money in a um, oh my god, how am I going to pay the rent kind of way? Thank God, not to say that I was you know a um, multimillionaire. Um, but I, for me, it's the, how am I going to make the money to invest more into what I want to do? And so, um, that, that's what concerns me. It's less about paying for the immediate bills and more about paying for the future and investing in the future. And so, um, I, you know, I, I would say that that, and that happens again once in, uh, over the last since being an entrepreneur. That's happened, and um, so over the last you know eight years ago when I first met you at that 
party. Um, I was probably more concerned about it. But again, I, I can't tell you that I have this moment of, oh, my God, where is the money going to come from? And not because I, I there were times that I, I haven't struggled because there, there have been times, but more so because Again, I, I never, I guess maybe it was also my innate philosophy. I, I never really believed that that worry was going to be productive. And I've been unemployed and I've, when I was unemployed, um, it was like in two, in 2000, um, after the, the digital bubble burst, I, um, and it was, I mean, a difficult market. Um, and, you know, and, and getting unemployment, I don't remember what it was like, 450 week or I, whatever it was, it really, it's not a New York city kind of thing. And I, we, what I would do is I would do everything. The first dollars would go to the things that kept me emotionally afloat. And that meant that I still paid the cleaning lady. I still had a cleaning lady because even though I was home and I had time, I knew that, that one of the first signs of depression or, or just, just, sadness, right, is you let things go. And I knew that if I had a home, and it was my home office at the time, right, that was that was much more, that was clean and shiny, and I, I would feel better and would work harder. Um, and then also, I gave myself a $10 reward every day, that every day I made it through and worked hard, you know, I had to do, I gave myself some assignments, I had to email X people, go on monster.com, whatever it was, I could have $10 to spend any way I wanted. And so whether it was like a, a hot cocoa with whipped cream, or get get my nails done, or go to, at the time, this is, you know, 2015 years ago, Banana Republic would have like a sale, like <laughs> these things are all $9.99. And so I could buy that. Um, so that's what I would do. I never, it was less about worrying about it and more about how to keep myself afloat so that I wouldn't get depressed. Emotionally and tactically. Correct. I like that story a lot. I don't know a whole lot about you as a young Melanie Nodkin. Can you share with us a story of growing up and an experience that had something to do with money that you really held on to all these years and looking back, you think even perhaps it was the a, a, a seed that was planted that now as an adult, you're really um, benefiting from the, from the bloom. Yes. And I wouldn't say that it's one particular episode, but rather just a um, sort of the, the way that we lived. And that was um, I went to uh, a Jewish day school in, in Montreal and there um, a lot of kids' parents made more money than, than my dad, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom and wasn't always well. And um, there was always an us-and-them kind of attitude. And by the way, there were many more of them. And so everything we did was much more modest. Um, and, you know, I didn't have the fancy bat mitzvah. I had a little 12-year-old birthday party with make-your-own-Sundays. And, you know, I didn't get to go on the class trip. Um, but my parents sent me away on a smaller trip that was funded or, you know, there, there were always way outs, but the, I felt just in general that, that it was sort of a, you know, there's us and there's them. And I think that that gave me a decades long, um, understanding that wealth was somebody else's and not mine. 
and and I didn't deserve it or I didn't get it or it wasn't for us. And I have recently um, been giving myself my own self-therapy, um, reminding myself that I deserve wealth and that the biggest pain, the biggest wall for me in terms of um, the kind of wealth that I that I envision for myself is believing that I deserve it. And, and I deserve it, Varnish. I work my tail off. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think for me, it's much more of a growing out of which, you know, even as mature adults, we were not necessarily um, aware of the influences we had as children. But I, I know that there was always this idea that wealth was somebody else's. And what I've d decided to do is, you know, if I see it like a, I don't know, the, the real estate section and the journal or the times, I used to sort of, um, you know, that would be the first section I throw away. That that's the, that goes straight into the recycle bin. And now I force myself. No, Melanie, you could have that. Look, with that apartment, that could be yours. Right. As opposed to the attitude of, oh, yeah, I could never have that. I'm not even going to look. I also think, though, with wealth, and I've come to this realization, too, it, because especially I think women, we do very well in school. We're very hardworking. We know what it, we know we're not afraid to put in the extra effort. And we've always been rewarded, at least in the academic sense, for those sorts of efforts and showing up in that way. But in the real world, in business especially, I find that there is effort. There is this sense that if I work hard enough, it will be mine because I've deserved it. But there's also strategy. You have to work smart. And I think that I'm, for one, I'll be the first to say, I, I, I work hard sometimes to my detriment, um, to the point where I don't have any energy left to think a little bit more strategically. And so what would you say about that? I think, do you have any advice as someone who's been very successful from a business standpoint as an entrepreneur? Yes, there is putting in the effort and working hard and feeling as you deserve the wealth, but what about the working smart and, and the strategy behind your pursuit of wealth? Uh, that's a fantastic question. I, yes, being productive um, doesn't mean doing a lot of work. And um, there's, there's still, I mean, today, I, you know, I, I, I'll feel somehow guilty if I, if I, you know, take an hour and go for a walk where I know really, frankly, that's a productive thing for me to do because it gets the creative juices flowing. Um, we have very, you know, specific things about what counts as quote unquote productivity. And, um, and for me, I, um, I, I know there's no question, um, especially when I write, um, most of my work is done, I'm a solo entrepreneur, is, is done myself. And I, sometimes I work with people virtually, but it's still me alone. And I get so much energy from being around people. And so um, I do my best to meet with people um, a few times a week so I could get that um, energy back. And I find that those ideas and the, those exchanges um, make me smarter in what I do because I sort of curate all these best practices that may not even be articulated as best practices, but I sort of pick up, right? Um, and, uh, you know, and that's, I think, um, something that I try to do. Also, um, I, 
I really do my best to, to read up on best practices and what other people are doing and, and stay a step ahead. And so, um, you know, when it comes to the media industry today, it's moving so quickly. I mean, you know, because you've been in the media industry your whole entire career. I mean, it's it, there, it, even the, the, the biggest um biggest communications company, I mean, Comcast today is now running out to see if it could acquire all or parts of Vice and, and, um, and they already have Vogue. I mean, it's just, it is such a spinning world. Um, but it's important to always stay smarter. Um, then, you know, you don't, it's much more exhausting to try and catch up. So there's a lot of homework involved in in staying smarter. Absolutely. We talk a lot on this podcast about the correlation between health and wealth. So I love hearing that you do invest in yourself. You take that break, that walk, that yoga class, whatever it is, because uh, it does, it does boomerang in in good ways. Oh, the the, the best thing I ever did was start to meditate two and a half years ago. Um, Yeah, it was the best decision um, I ever made. And I, again, can't take complete um, credit for. I didn't wake up one day and say, oh, maybe I should look at meditation. Again, a few friends, and by the way, among the most successful, I mean, uber wealthy friends of mine meditate. And, um, you know, I'm one of those people that when I make a decision, I make it. Um, for better, for worse, usually for better. But I don't spend a lot of time overthinking things. And I'll say overthinking in that I always believe people know the answer and then they, they know that the answer is there's give and take. And so they, they keep going back and forth. I don't know. Should I, shouldn't I, they talk about it. 12 people. I'm like, yeah, you know what? Okay. There's opportunity costs, but I'm going to go ahead. And, um, I wake up, um, every day knowing, looking forward to my morning meditation. And in fact, today I, um, I don't live too far from the Hudson river and I went out and sat on a bench, um, and, and looked at the sailboats and the, the beautiful water, um, and, and meditated. And that has quieted the mind as they say, I, I no longer have those arguments with other people where nobody's there except for me in my bed at night. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't, like, I, the, I don't get aggravated at things that used to aggravate me. I can wait in line now where I used to not be able to wait in line. Not that I want to wait in line, but I mean, things that used to aggravate me are, are gone. I, I find myself to be a much nicer person. Not that I wasn't nice before. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, but I, I, I find that my kindness is at it is at a nine as opposed to at a six, seven, you know, I'll be kind. Sure. New York definitely uh, rubs you in in certain ways after living here for very long. And so I I recognize my impatience more so when I leave New York City (laughs) and my my level of impatience. uh, Yeah. So good. I'm I'm glad to hear that. You're not the first person, obviously, to talk about meditation and correlate that to prosperity. And so it's it's something that I am going to seriously consider. It's difficult with a with a baby uh, to find the, the quiet time to do that. But as as I've heard, you don't need an hour. You can meditate for a few minutes, and sometimes that's a good start. Yes, that that's absolutely true, and um, it's it it will also make you more patient with the baby when he's crying. Meaning, it's all of that right. stuff, it right? All, it's yeah. not so. Yeah. Hmm. Well, now you've really got me convinced. <laughs> what is a, a financial failure, Melanie? As somebody who has now for many years built a business from scratch, I'm sure you have had some ups and downs, more ups than downs. But what would you say is one failure that you learned a tremendous amount from? 
So I'll be honest about failures, and I'm sure I've had some, but I forget them. And the reason why I forget them is, you know, I'll, I'll bank the lesson learned, um, and then I move on. Um, you know, I'm asked, I'm asked this about um, otherhood as well when it comes to do I regret over, did I leave some guy who I should have given more chance to or something? And, and A, I, I really do not believe that, no. But either way, I say that regret is behind me. And in the case of a man, love is ahead. In case of career, success is ahead. And if I'm back there, um, I'll never, I'll miss what's coming. And so I don't really spend a lot of time, frankly, focused or thinking about or evaluating um, failure because it's a waste of time. You know, again, the the lesson is banked um, and that's it. And you learn it and you move on. Um, So that's that's what I would say about failure. And so you don't remember (laughs) maybe a time where you did something that you a little bit regret with money, with your money, an investment that went went south? I can tell you the opposite. I can tell you that I took all my money out of the stock market um, to invest in this business and it, and it wasn't a little bit of money. Um, and probably I probably spent more on things than I should have. And it was it was at a time where um, it was 2007. And um, I mean, it was an expensive time to start a website and um, and a digital, not that Savianti's only website, but that was the, the anchor. And um, so things I, I spent a lot of money on things that maybe I, I shouldn't have spent money on. But the truth is, um, six weeks after the website launch, Lehman fell. And um, I would have lost all that money. So um, again, I could have I could have been upset that I spent the money and maybe I should have left some in the stock market. I should have put some here. But in the end, you make plans and God laughs. I said that with a Jewish accent on purpose. You know, it's just you. Whatever it is, the, I always think, frankly, that 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 unless you're really stupid about it, right? Unless you just take all your money and go to Vegas and, and just to not care whether or not you, you, you bet at all, right? If you just give it away without any meaning, right? That's one thing. But, but in general, um, failures that we don't, um, we don't do on purpose, that, that we do with the great best intention and, you know, lesson learned afterward, um, every, every step back is really, I, I truly believe this, Farnoosh, is a step forward in the right direction. I agree. And, and so I just don't, I just don't think about it. You know, it, another thing that I do is if I were to buy something that I don't like, like I'll spend money on a, on a dress or something. And I, and in the end, you know what, I just, and I already had it altered, so I can't return it. I'm like, ugh, I really shouldn't have done it. Should not have bought that. You know what I do with it? I get rid of it because I don't need to see it every time <laughs> I open the closet. And that and may be a product of your meditation. Could it be. may be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe all of this is right, yeah. and and yeah, absolutely. What is your number one financial habit that helps you keep your financial life in order? Helps you make good decisions, clear decisions. Um, I don't like debt. <laughs> I um I, I pay my bills, and I um and I feel so much better once they're paid. Boy, um and. You know, there's a difference between debt and, and debt financing, a larger thing, which is a, you know, finance thing. I'm not talking about that, where other people are investing in you with debt. But more so, um, just, you know, paying your bills. Um, I, 
for me, I think that I, I feel a greater lethargy, a heaviness, when I know that my Amex bill needs to be paid. Um, and um, so for me, um, I pay my bills. I don't want debt. I don't put thing. I don't charge the, I can't, don't buy things I can't afford. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, that's my best advice. I, I think I'm like you. I had a student loan when I was in my twenties that I was able to pay off at the, you know, the minimum balance it was a very low interest rate. But as soon as I got a book advance, I just paid the whole thing down. Some might've said that was silly because the interest rate was so low and I was able to deduct the interest from my taxable income. So there was that benefit. Maybe I should have used that money to invest in the stock market, but it cleared my conscience. It made me feel good. I just was, I had that off my, my plate. And for me, that was, that was enough to, to know that was the right decision for me. So I completely relate. Yeah. Let's do some so money fill in the blanks before we wrap. This has been so engaging and fun. Thank you so much for all your time so far. If I won the lottery tomorrow, and I'm asking you, if if Melanie, if I if I yes. won the lottery tomorrow, <laughs> the first thing I would do is I'd buy an apartment with huge windows that was really bright, like white, on the inside of the apartment, and it would overlook the water. And it would be big and I like, and (laughs) big and closets and nice bathroom and, and big windows, lots of light. And I can see the water. That's the first thing I would do. I love that. And hopefully lots of guest bedrooms. So I can can stop in. I'm I'm currently displaced from my primary residence during a renovation. And we are, we are currently homeless for the month of September. I need to find a place as soon as possible. Um, so please win that lottery ASAP. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, one thing that I purchase that makes my life easier or better, an expense. Huh. One thing that I purchase that makes... Um, or the money that you spend that makes your life easier or better. I, I, I invested in learning how to do transcendental meditation. Um, it's over a thousand dollars. I remember somewhere between a thousand fifteen hundred. I don't remember. Um, now it's it goes to a charity, the David Lynch Foundation, and so I believe it's a charitable donation. I can't really be sure. I don't remember now. It's been a few years, but it was a, it was a heavy investment, you know, to, to go to four classes to learn how to meditate. But I mean, that changed my life. That was the beginning of everything for me. A whole new attitude. So um, I'd say that. Wow. That's not a lot of money when you think about what you're getting in return. And that's obviously exactly. been paying off. Exactly. My my biggest guilty pleasure that I spend a lot of money on and I don't regret it is? Um, dinners with my girls. Mm-hmm. You know, like just, and again, everything's, it's all relative, but um, just being out and going out with my girlfriends or guy and guy friends and, um, and sometimes treating them, sometimes I'm treated and we just in getting that, that dish that looks so good. Like why not just spending money that I didn't have to spend? Cause I could, you know, we could go to a, a much cheaper place and have a bowl of $10 pasta and be done with it. But now like we go to nice places and enjoy and that I, I, that I'm happy to spend money on because mm-hmm. it's, um, it's so rewarding in so many ways. Yeah. It's not just a meal. It's an experience. Exactly. One thing I wish I had known about money growing up is that it's democratic. Hmm. <laughs> that um, that that everybody um, in this capitalist society has the right to earn 
um, money. And um, I wish I, I, and I'm still, still like, you know, as I said earlier, I'm still working on that, um, on that idea. I love that. Well, hopefully this podcast is showing people through guests like you that, you know, you can, that money is, should be democratized and it is, wealth is achievable for anyone. I've had several guests on this show who went from poverty to earning just uh, unbelievable amounts of money and, and more importantly, being fulfilled along the way. Yep. When I donate money, I like to give to blank because? Um, well, I'll, I'll be specific with this one. Um, I, I Again, money to UJA Federation. I think I mentioned about 53 times on the show that I'm Jewish. And it's mm-hmm. a, it's the United Jewish Appeal of New York. And, and while they do extraordinary things um, for Jews and Gentiles alike, um, and what's interesting about it as well is that they have a lot of events. Um, and they're specific to, to for instance, career categories. So there's media ent- and entertainment, there's technologies. So I'm always um, meeting new people or doing fa- fascinating things. So it's kind of, in a way, it's it's one of those selfish donations and that, yes, I can feel good that I'm, I'm giving to a charity that has been around for decades, that is doing good things again for Gentiles as well as Jews, but also um, that I, I get to um, feel what my friend Gretchen Rubin, you know, who wrote The Happiness Project and Better Than before says this, this atmosphere of growth, wherever, whenever I'm there, I feel like I've learned something and I've expanded my mind and expanded my network. So it's, it's the, it's the gift that gives and, and gift that I receive from. I love that. Gretchen is a friend of the show. She's been on and we, we love her as well. Yes. And last but not least, I'm Melanie Notkin and I'm so money because... I deserve it. Yay. <laughs> you do. And you negotiate it well. As I say, you don't get what you deserve. You get what you negotiate sometimes, but you do both very well. And so for that and so much more, Melanie, thank you so much for joining us and sharing all these great insights and being very honest with us. Congratulations on otherhood and looking forward to all of the gifts that are coming from that for us and everybody else and yourself as well. Well, you're a gift, Farnish. You're a gift, certainly to me, because now we know we've been friends eight years, um, meeting that dark um, room. At, <laughs> In that dark, crowded room <laughs> with the low ceiling. Yeah. Um, but we stayed friends, and, and you've contributed to SavvyAnti.com, and we've we've had a lot of great interactions over the years. I'm so glad that we've stayed in touch. But but more so, you're a gift to your, to your listeners. I listen to your show, and there's so much valuable insight. So um, I hope that whoever's listening to this now um, and hasn't listened before, before I only listened to a few of your shows go back there were what how many like 190s I mean just you're actually my 200th <gasps> episode <gasps> yes this is um, so we've pre-recorded this but it is airing and you will be the 200th episode Woohoo. Woo-hoo. Oh, wow. Okay. I feel good. I'm already like doing a little dance to your, <laughs> to your music, to your, uh, to your, to your intro to music. To my jingle. So, yeah. Your jingle. Yeah. <laughs> so you're a gift to your listeners. You're a gift to me. So thank you so much. I'm honored to, to have been here and to have had this conversation, um, with you and so many. Oh my gosh, Melanie. I'm not used to guests, uh, giving me such accolades at the end, but I, I appreciate it. This was so awesome. Thank you. And, um, everyone, check out SavvyAnti.com. The Otherhood uh, is her latest, and we will uh, we'll be watching you. Thank you.
If you'd like to learn more about Melanie Notkin, her website is melanienotkin.com. There's also SavvyAnti.com. She's on Twitter at SavvyAnti. And we have, of course, all this information and the links at SoMoneyPodcast.com. Also the transcript from this interview and the comments, as well as all of that from previous episodes. And I want to hear from you. If you're interested in connecting with me one-on-one, hop onto iTunes and leave a review for this show. Every Saturday at the top of the show, I pick one new reviewer to receive a free 15-minute money session with me. And so if you're interested, uh, that's the way to qualify. If you want to ask me a question for the Ask for New segments that I air on Saturdays and Sundays, very simple. Hop onto somoneypodcast.com and click on Ask Farnoosh, and there you can submit your question about pretty much anything. I had questions recently about you know, how to get money for a business, how to deal with a breakup. A guy breaks up with you over presumably your success. How do you deal with that? How do you get over the blues? And of course, money questions ranging from how to get out of debt, how to earn money, how to ask for that raise. I'm all ears, guys and gals. So looking forward to hearing from you. And uh, just want to, again, say thank you for helping me reach this huge milestone, 200 episodes. I couldn't be prouder. I couldn't feel more loved. Truly, your listenership is, uh, it means the world to me. So thank you for coming back and back and back. And I hope to see you back here tomorrow for our 201st episode. In the meantime, I hope your day is so money. money.